0: welcome to Empathetic Witness. You are my first guest for this year, <laughs> 2021. So I'm really excited. I've been thinking about you since we had our discussion a couple weeks ago. And I'm really excited about our, our conversation today. So um, why don't you introduce yourself? And then we I will I will um, start the interview with my first question.
1: Sure, I am Jennifer Mervin. Um, I am a mother of four amazing children, uh, two 12-year-olds, a 10-year-old, and an eight-year-old. And I am Métis on my father's side um, and a European on my mother's side. And my children are Cherokee and Muscogee on their father's side. So we have a beautiful blended uh, cultural home. I'm mm-hmm. a registered psychologist and I specialize in um, the neuroscience of trauma and mm-hmm. helping help people through some of that. So, yeah.
0: Wow, that's really exciting. Um, yeah, you were introduced to me by Gabor Mate, who is, you know, a renowned, uh, physician, specifically with trauma. And um, so I'm so excited to meet with you and to have this podcast. The podcast theme is trauma, (laughs) and how Indigenous people can cope with trauma. And uh, so I think I remember reading somewhere now it's been a while, you know, when I looked you up, but you You were honored for um, your work on mental health with youth. I think it was 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And what I would like to ask you um, is how did you get involved in this area? Do you have a personal story that you can share um, with how you got involved in it?
1: Yeah, so I was one of three children in um, my home. I'm the oldest actually of three girls and um, my family really struggled with a lot of different issues sort of connected to trauma, but my mm-hmm. mom especially really struggled with uh, mental health and some addictions issues.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that uh, impacted her, her ability um, to parent in a lot of ways. And so Unfortunately, my sisters and I all ended up on the street as as teenagers. My youngest sister was actually not even a teen yet. She was about 11 years old by the time Hi. she was on the street. And so um, I was asked several times, I think, throughout the course of like my education and my career, you know, what made the difference for you? How are you able to be in the position you are now given what you went through as a young person. And it was always such an interesting question for me because uh, I, I I knew some of the factors that led to some of my success and healing in life, but I was always curious for others what led to theirs. And so a lot of the focus in my in my master's degree and my doctoral work was looking at what we can do to help support others in their healing journey.
0: Mm, yes. Yeah, it, it's always... Um, great when we, I mean, it, I mean, the story isn't great that you, that you experience, you know, being raised in a trauma uh, household, but to have the strength then to pursue something that will have you stand up for others in this area. So, you know, oftentimes um, when we experience trauma, as Gabor says, it's not the trauma that that sits with us, it's how we actually respond to that trauma. And uh, so I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, your way of responding to the trauma, and it's probably an ongoing, um, education, right? You're, you're continually learning about yourself, you're continually moving forward. And uh, I think that is, that is the resilience and strength that I identify with Indigenous strength. Because, I mean, unlike you, I come from a large family, I had 10 brothers, five sisters. And some people say, Oh, my God, 16? How did your mother cope with that? You know, like my mother actually birthed 19 children and 16 surviving. So when I look at that, the sheer resilience it must have taken for her is amazing, right? And so I I always recognize that my strength comes from her Mm. and how she was able to raise, you know, all these children, my brothers and sisters, in an era where we didn't have, um, when I was younger, we didn't have power, like we didn't have power, we didn't have indoor plumbing. And can you imagine with all the babies, what it must have been like for her? I mean, I can't imagine. I'm such a softie, you know, when I think about, oh my God, the power went out, how am I going to do, charge my cell phone? <laughs> But she lived that life. And in fact, because in our tradition, the Dene, Denis Dusene, when when a young girl was a certain age, she was given away for marriage. And so mm-hmm. my mom at a very young age was given away to my dad, who was 20 odd years older than her. I mean and sometimes, you know, when I talk when I used to talk to my mom about the relationship, and then she had babies, right? After that. Um, it was, I think she, you know, but there's certain aspects of her life after when she was married that was a real struggle for her. And I remember she came to visit me when my son was two. And um you know, she liked where I live. I live in a rural area outside of Ottawa. And she really kind of liked it. This is really beautiful. It's really nice. But I don't like the bush. Because when she was young, when she was given away to my dad, Mm -hmm. she left, and they lived um, in, there's an area just south of Uranium City called Goldfields. So she lived in Goldfields, which is a small, small, small community and she lived in a tent. So Mm. she doesn't like the memory of what, and she was isolated, you know? And when we think about right now, you know, I need to acknowledge that we are in a global pandemic and we are restricted. A lot of our activities are restricted. So we're dealing collectively with trauma. Yes. And it's huge. I think often we're not recognizing the, we're going about our life as best as we can, but we're not Mm -hmm. recognizing the trauma we're experiencing. And we need to stop and think about that. We need to take a breath and acknowledge that, you know, maybe we as adults can cope a little bit better, but our children, they're Mm -hmm. disconnected from school. My son had to withdraw from university last year when the pandemic started right. and, and this fall he said do I have to go back and I said no you don't have to go back because you know you can always pick up that last year that you need to finish anytime and it doesn't have to be during a pandemic and you'd actually have a better experience if you're not in a pandemic when you're in university, because not only would he be worrying about his own safety, he would Mm. be uh, worrying about our safety, you know, so it just would not be good. So I said, don't worry about it. You're, you know, 21, you know, you can, you've got a lot of time to finish that year and even go on to postgraduate uh, work after if you if you if you're interested in. So I, you know, I've never studied the brain uh, formally, but two years ago, I had a stroke. And that gave me ignite, it it was so I ended up having what is defined as um, left side neglect, which means, you know, I couldn't see things on my left side unless somebody pointed it out and say, Oh, there's your glass. And and then I'll look at it and then my brain will recognize it. right? Right. And so I was curious about that. I thought, wow, how can my brain see something and then not recognize what it is like, or actually it just didn't see it. Like it didn't, it wasn't that it didn't recognize that it was a cut. It chose not to see it. And so that got me curious, like, how did, like, what is the brain doing when it's doing that? Because often when your body does something, it's to protect you. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, well, what is it protecting me from? Why am I not seeing that? You know, so, so I started to study the brain, I started looking at what the brain, what you need to do to have a healthy brain, and at the time, I was a vegetarian. But the more studying that I did, I realized um, that I actually needed to eat meat, mm. for the protein. I mean, a lot of vegetarians, vegans will say, you can get enough protein and plant, but there's a specific type of protein that you can only get from meat. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to eat meat, then I should be eating wild meat, my cultural meat. So, you know, I'm looking for wild fish, wild meat, caribou, you know, buffalo, whatever, like my just favorite stuff. My favorite stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's so, and it's so good for your brain, you know? Yeah. So I started to do that. I started looking at the brain and trauma has a huge impact on the brain. And I think this particular um, pandemic has a negative impact on the brain and we may not even recognize it. So what what do you see the pandemic is doing to indigenous youth?
1: Well, I think it's hard because you talk about resilience, right? And about like, how do we build resilient brains and Mm -hmm. what is good for a a growing, developing brain? When we talk about Indigenous youth, it's amazing. Um, It's funny because I think in the last 10 to 15 years, honestly, Mm -hmm. between you and I, we've had all this amazing advances in neuroscience, Mm -hmm. neuroimaging. We're able to look at the brain in new ways that we've never looked at before.
0: Mm -hmm. And then
1: I think it's hard because some of the recommendations coming out in terms of like, wow, what really helps build a better brain? What are the strategies that we can use to overcome Mm -hmm. trauma? They're coming from kind of Western medicine, white doctors. And it's like, oh my gosh, look at the concepts. Because some of these concepts, Mm -hmm. they're actually, they have been known Mm -hmm. um, by people and used by indigenous healers for generations. But now we have the science that can back it up (laughs) to say, oh, that's, that's what's happening. right it's actually helping you know blockage in the brainstem or whatever and it's it's interesting for me because we look at um indigenous cultural practices and healing practices and ceremony and Mm -hmm. so much of it really relates to our current contemporary neuroscience so when we talk about the pandemic I I guess for me one of the things I have to address that is really um such a huge barrier in building resilience in our indigenous youth right now is isolation
0: Mm. right
1: This is not natural um, to our culture and I think whenever we start to isolate people and we have youth that are spending more and more time alone instead of with family, with aunties and uncles and grandparents around, with uh, neighbors and other families and friends and cousins, that we know absolutely has a damaging effect on a developing brain. And it doesn't even have to be in a young person, definitely in young people when brains are just starting to grow and build these neural networks and Mm -hmm. undergo pruning, right? We actually have in adolescence, we are taking away at that, you know, critical period of around Mm. 14. We're actually going to clear our brain out and what we're not using, we're going to prune away. And what we're wiring into our brain is what we're using more actively. Yes. So we are in isolation. If we are in anxiety and fear and worry and concern for the world, that's what we're hardwiring into that young person's brain. Uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this is my concern around the pandemic. And definitely because of some of what we need to do with social distancing and keeping people safe right now, Mm -hmm. wow, it does not lend us to those natural tools that we can use for healing a brain that is hurting and maybe has been exposed to trauma, which is being wrapped around by those connections, that sense of belonging, community, identity, Mm
0: -hmm. and love and support that
1: buffers those negative impacts on a young brain.
0: Yes, I totally agree with you. And that's a really nice segue to get to ask you, what modalities are you using in your therapy for Indigenous, doesn't have to be youth, but Indigenous peoples, Um, you know, there's, you know, there's the, um, um, you know, the healing circles, there's sweats, there's all sorts of things, but what area are you more focused on? Or is it all of them?
1: I honestly, yeah, I have to say I really try. And especially because, I mean, I'm Métis, my background, but I work um, a couple days a week with the Swathin First Nation community. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not only, you know, including some of my own authentic, genuine healing practices that I might, you Mm -hmm. know, tap with them. But I'm really trying to provide resources and um, culturally appropriate Uh, you know, resources and tools that they would connect with and relate to. So there is a real myriad, there's lots of variability. But I have to say, if we look at like, um, I think Bruce Perry is definitely a leader in this area where he says it's those rhythmic
0: patterns,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Practices that can help heal our brain, that oldest part of our brain, our brainstem that as a baby, we liked to rock back and forth. And we found it so soothing. And the brainstem being the part of our brain where we're actually going to experience like the impact of trauma hits first, you look at where those patterned, repetitive, rhythmic responses for our brain Mm -hmm. that can bring back um, some of that healing to be able to be able to move those pieces of information up to the more, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex and the slower thinking parts of our brain. Mm. We look at if we look at indigenous healing practices. I think overall, yeah. so much of what we already tap into. Think about think about canoeing, think about mm. paddling and rowing, the yeah. rhythmic pattern yeah. you know, response done in community with others, where you yes. feel connected and interconnectedness.
0: Yeah,
1: healing for our brain. Yeah. So, and I take youth out paddleboarding on paddle boards. Yeah. I take out in boats. Um, whenever I can tap into some of those those um, activities that are rhythmic and calming mm-hmm. and soothing. I smudge. I definitely love sweat. It's been an entire year without me being in a lodge with a young person with the yes. pandemic. Um, but it is those moments where we are drumming and we are getting in touch mm. with our heartbeat and the sound of the drum mm. and the rhythmic response that resonates
0: throughout our whole body. Yeah. That is healing for oh, brain. I yeah. totally believe. I'm When my... I mean, we've had a couple deaths in the family since the pandemic. And one of my brothers posted on his Facebook page, Dene Drummers. Mm-hmm. And I've always had, well, I'm Dene, but I love their, 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 their drumming and their singing. And when he posted that, it was a, a healing song, was the first time I cried, like mm-hmm. that I actually felt the the um you know, the loss of my brother and my sister. It was through that song. And once I was able to 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 cry that out, to get in touch with that mourning,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, then I was okay, you know? But it was, and I, I kind of thought, because I didn't go to their funerals because it's the pandemic. And I had right. just talked to my brother, you know, probably a, a week before he passed. And my sister, I talked to her a week before she passed, but it never completed because, you know, usually funerals are the process to grieve, right? That's when you go through, it's it's set up for the living to go through that grieving process, you know, all the stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And when you're not, and then it's also community, right? So the community is there, the family is there, and that's all part of it. And... um, So I, yeah, so I really get what you're saying, the drumming, the songs, and unfortunately, you know, we can't be together, even now, you know, to hear those songs. But can you imagine when the pandemic is over, and they have the gathering, like can all the, um, the process of grief that will go through those songs, Mm -hmm. because it will happen, because I think that, many of us don't know we're in trauma. Like, I don't think we recognize we're in it because we're, we're doing, we're going through our life and I don't think we know it's so traumatic. You know, like the, we've got the loss of our movement. We have the loss of being around family and friends. We have loss of jobs where our jobs are on Zoom now and not in the office. So Mm -hmm. there's plenty of loss that we're experiencing now. And it's important to tap into the cultural components of um, our resilience, you know, and, and do what we can. So I, I, I agree with you, the drumming, the rhythmic stuff, the paddling. um, I mean, I'm not, well, I'm in Ontario my family lives in Alberta, so I'm not close to any of my family. So I'm not seeing them. Um, so it's, it's traumatic, I think, for everybody. Well, a couple of things. One is I'm just so sorry for your losses, especially during a pandemic when you
1: can't gather and really mourn and grieve in the way that we would want to. So I really heartfelt condolence out to you. I'm really sorry for your, your losses. Mm. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And then in terms of the, you know, are we facing something that is truly considered traumatic? Well, I I'm a really strong believer that until we are able to validate the trauma for ourselves Mm. and one another, we're actually stuck and not able to move into our healing journey. We really aren't. We need to be Um, You know, it's one of the things I talk about a lot because I think it's very easy. Um, I've seen so much judgment and criticism from Mm -hmm. one another through this pandemic. And I've seen a lot of love and compassion and beauty. Mm -hmm. Well, but I have to say, you know, we need to be very careful about judging each other's trauma. We need to be very careful about saying that's traumatic or that's not traumatic, because truly it's really about the person experiencing Mm. that pain. And we cannot judge that for anyone but ourselves. Yes. Yes. And when it comes to judging it for ourselves, we need to be compassionate and loving and understand that this is a very difficult time. And, and some of these issues for some of us are incredibly traumatic Mm -hmm. and when we can acknowledge that for us, that's where the start of healing can finally begin. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things to help us understand what sort of registers on the brain is traumatic versus not traumatic is sort of if we look at it in the realm of stress, and there's sort of the three different types of stress, you can have positive stress, right? Right before I met with you today, I had a young athlete in my office, and uh, she is running track this Sunday, and she's going to be doing hurdles for a first time, and she's nervous about it. We talk a little bit about positive stress. So positive stress can be a great thing when you're running track, it's going to mildly increase some of your stress hormones in your body, You're going to have an increased heart rate, right? Your body's going to have a response to some of the stress and it can stay within the positive region of stress. As long as, you know, we don't let it get too explosively carried away with anxiety, fear, um, anticipatory anxiety, things like that. And how we do that, how we keep it positive is making sure that we're taking really good care of ourselves and keeping things in perspective tolerable stress, right? So the next level or realm or region of stress is when we can have more significant things going on in our lives, right? Like a loss, like grieving um, someone, it can be really, really difficult. And what keeps it in that tolerable range of stress is when we have enough support, right? When we're caring enough for ourselves, and we have people around us to care for us that keep it in that tolerable range. So it's buffered, that stress that could be easily overwhelming and debilitating, right? Grief can be debilitating for some people. But when you have enough support that wraps around you and comforts you and cares for you and you're caring for yourself, you can make sure that stress doesn't turn into toxic stress or trauma, and that's where we're experiencing such elevations of stress hormones. Right where you have adrenaline and cortisol just zooming through your bloodstream and your body and your brain to the the point that after six weeks of it at these elevated levels, your body's baselines actually change. They recalibrate. So instead of having a resting heart rate at sixty. Now your resting heart rate is 75 because you've never dropped back down to your baseline. And so this is where I think we need to be really careful, because if we are not caring for ourselves and caring for one another in the face of this pandemic, we're going to see a lot of people have impacted brains by this toxic stress.
0: The the point that um, I'm getting from what you just said is that, you know, there's the positive stress, and then negative stress, like positive stress, like buying a new house, moving into a new house, a new baby, you know, marriage, all those types of things are still stressful, right? Yeah. So yeah, so that's, I think it's good to acknowledge or identify the types of stresses we have. And for me, what I started doing Well, actually, I've been a meditator for since university, (laughs) friends of mine got me into meditation, TM meditation, uh, because there's a student rate, which was cheaper than you know, the regular rate. So I've been a meditator forever. And meditation is my touchstone for resilience and keeping sane. And I know it, scientifically, it impacts the brain. And especially, you know, the hippocampus area, and and it's it's really important to have a practice of something. You know, it doesn't have to be meditation. It could some people can. It's prayer. It could be maybe even beating. You know, sitting there beating that could be meditative. You know, anything you do in a, a solitary. Um, way for yourself, something positive, and then at the end of your beating, you have something beautiful to show. So you have that as well, right? So it's really, um, so people need to look at, or it could be exercise, it could be, you know, running, sprinting, whatever, but to do something for yourself, to release that stress, and calm yourself, you know, so I agree with you on that. It's funny that you mentioned
1: that because during the pandemic, um, we actually started a beating and breathing women's circle. uh, And it was so healing. And let me tell you, I am not a talented beater whatsoever. But there was something so lovely about um, really being, like you said, in that practice of it without having the other commitments or other expectations. Um, of that two hours together with other women and we were all socially distanced at our own little individual tables six feet apart with our little bead kits in the center and still to be able to share conversations about our family and parenting and what we're cooking this week and that being and knowing that in those moments that's tolerable stress we were even talking about the pandemic but instead of having that spike in you know increased Mm stress hormones, yeah. we were able to be connected and feel that sense of calm, right? And, yeah. and keep, keep the stress low because we're sharing with one another. Mm-hmm. And that the support of a group like that and doing an activity, like you said, and especially a cultural activity that helps infuse us with cultural pride and, yeah. you know, that sense yeah, of yeah connectedness and something mm-hmm. bigger is I think is the, these are the keys right mm-hmm. keeping us well during a global pandemic yes yeah it's so true so true and and in terms of meditation I am such a big believer in meditation right I mean there's been such a huge uh sweep in mindfulness right yes uh, and and being curious about you know what we're thinking and feeling mm-hmm. not being judgmental of that yeah. right yeah noticing it and being aware of it but also being able to let it go and mm-hmm. just being able to have that meditative reflective calm state of mm-hmm. being yeah. as a result and i think it's incredible people who who are able to put time into a meditative practice you're right they immeasurably grow parts of their brain as much as 25% in a short period of time 8 to yeah. 10 weeks to grow those areas of our brain mm-hmm. that might impacted by toxic stress or trauma and it's funny that you mentioned the hippocampus because it's one that I joke about all the time that I'm sure is my most impacted brain structure from my own personal trauma because I have problems with visual spatial orientation and you know understanding uh, maps and how to get to places and it's funny you know I don't know if you saw the New York Times did a beautiful article a few years back about the profession that actually grew their hippocampi oh. larger and it was london taxi
0: drivers oh they- right i I've, I've read an article like it was like 15 20 years ago right that there was oh. an article that they they knew all the addresses that they were going to go to yeah and
1: they grew their brains as a result of that yeah. right yeah. how amazing is that I know. And- it shows, but you know what, the hope in that, in that study to me shows the capacity that at any age, we have neuroplasticity, our yes. brains have a propensity to grow and heal and they want to at any yes. age.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, 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 that is so true. Well, it's just like, I mean, it's interesting, like even as much as 15 years ago, they didn't think that the brain grew past a certain age that it was stagnant right and so with all the studies after that with neuroplasticity and how you can teach your brain new tricks you can teach a dog an old dog new tricks like you you can do that and it's just practice you know you just learn how to do it and I think you know with you know with meditation it teaches you to actually to be in the moment Mm -hmm. And when you're in the moment, you actually remember more. Yes. When you're taking a meditative walk and you, you'll remember the path you're going more because you're there. You see that pebble, you see that flower, you recognize those things. And that's what I guess ignites your brain, right? It ignites your brain.
1: Well, I think what, I mean, if we t- look at the neuroscience of it, you're exactly right. So when we are stressed and we're running around frantically from yeah. place to place, right? Yeah. Um, And if we are start, if we're in fight or flight mode, right, our amygdala, right, that is what is inflamed in our brain, that is what is engaged, and it can actually make it difficult for the hippocampus to be able to consolidate our memories, Mm -hmm. right? So it is neurologically proven that yes, if we are hijacked, if we're an amygdala hijack, and that's the point, stress, whatever, but meditation, right, when we're Mm -hmm. in that calm and relaxed place our amygdala doesn't need to take front and center. It doesn't need to be in the front seat. Mm. It allows us to be able to engage those other brain centers that can help us aid in memory.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the brain is so fascinating. I think the whole body is fascinating because I believe it's designed to live and it'll do whatever it needs to do to keep living. And that's why, um, I mean, sometimes it'll do things that are, contrary a bit, right? Because when you're pregnant, your body, your baby will take all your calcium, all your nutrients, right? right. And so it's and but fortunately, you get that all back, <laughs> you know, you keep being healthy, right? But our body is designed to live. And yeah. you know, like the mitochondria, like in, a lot of people don't really realize the mitochondria, these little guys in your body they're actually there to make you live, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because, you know, there's certain things you can do to ignite your mitochondria. Like if you have a cold shower, Mm -hmm. they think they're going to die. So they're all going crazy, we're going to die. And so whatever they do actually helps your body, right? So it's really exciting.
1: It is. And just like our our body is designed um, to live, you know, our brains are designed to heal, which is just such a beautiful concept that no matter how frustrating, no matter how, you know, um, especially when we look at like the struggles of our, especially a lot of our young Indigenous youth that are facing um, mental health issues Mm -hmm. and addiction issues and, you know, our startling high rates of of suicide in some of our Mm communities. You know, I think we also need to take um, heart and hope Mm. that there is, there is so much um, that our body and our brains are designed to heal naturally on their own. And it's listening and being aware. And like you said, being in the moment so we can pay attention to what's happening in our bodies and our minds and our brains so that we can allow it to do exactly what it wants to do on its
0: own. And that is towards growth and healing. Yes, absolutely. One of the best advice I got after my stroke was a friend of mine said, don't be hard on yourself. Mm. Like don't, you know, take the time that you need. Don't rush your healing. Because it's a brain injury, right? A stroke. So she said, you know, just take your time, be loving to yourself. And don't rush anything. And so that was the best advice because before that, I'm I'm a personality, so I'm rush, 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 get it done, get it done, do all these things, right? Mm-hmm. So that was one of the best things. And I think with Indigenous youth, um, you know, in my family, the the young, the youth, some with addiction issues, um, what I often tell them is look for a way to be be of service to others. Mm -hmm. Because when you're of service to others, you don't have time to really mellow into that depression or that negativity, that negative voice in your head, because you're doing something for somebody something bigger than yourself, right? So to to be. um, Yeah, I think the huge thing is to be of service to others. I think. Well,
1: that's
0: it's interesting you said. That's how we activate resilience,
1: actually, right? Mm. Like to really activate resilience, you need to have connection and belonging right? Yeah. You need to have yeah. that's essential to resilience. Yeah. But to really activate that to take it one step further, is yeah. you have to then, you know, infuse that with purpose and meaning. And depression, let me tell you, I mean, it's parasitic, it will make you think all about you, it makes us selfish yeah. and self-centered and self-focused. And one of the antidotes is truly to get outside of that and feel like actually, you, you're, you're part of something much bigger. And I think that's also such a strength in our indigenous culture is yeah. that we come from a collective culture where it isn't so individualistic mm. it isn't all about us yes. it is so about the greater good and the, and the larger collective I can tell you in my own life because I talk about this a lot in terms of making sure that young people have a voice and have opportunities for mm. purpose and meaning yes. I think again it's such an area of blessing for us because we can really seek that out in culture and cultural yes. identity and spirituality yes um but for me with my with my divorce which was quite traumatic on my kids I I, I was with um you know actually the my kid's father is a young man i met when i was on Granville Street as a homeless teenager and you know we stayed together for a very long time unfortunately it, it we it did end in divorce and it was very very hard on my kids mm. and my little daughter was the one who is probably most profoundly affected by our, our separating uh i mean she still hurts to this day really really hurts about it and her older sister my oldest daughter You know, she was always straight A's in school, called for leadership events and activities. Um, She was not uh, needing more opportunities for purpose and meaning and feeling special. Right.
0: Mm.
1: But I think those are the kids we often choose for special events and special moments because, well, they're mature, they're competent enough, Mm. their academics are in check. So let's choose the star student for that. You know what? When I would do these speaking engagements. Yeah. Yeah. I would meet in front of school districts. I was in front of our entire province with politicians, 700 people.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: would not ask my oldest on purpose. Because he yes. had plenty of opportunities and moments to be called up in front of a stage. Yeah. But I called up my middle daughter, who was probably my most hurting, Yeah. Who- struggled in school at that time, yeah. who um, her behavior was probably the biggest challenge out of my three kids. But I called her to that yeah. important moment where she had to come up and she had to acknowledge the territory where we were meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. And she had to sing the song and give the traditional open and introduce herself in a traditional way with her traditional name, and to say who she was from, and, um, and, and give the welcome to everybody in that audience. And I chose her on purpose, right? I chose her intentionally, because I knew she was the one who so needed that opportunity for purpose and meaning and feel special. And like, she was Mm -hmm. part of something much greater than herself. And I can't tell you how much it has helped her in her journey, right? Wow. uh, She has really excelled, like, academically, she's done so much better in school, socially, she's got a core group of friends, and she feels connected. And I've just seen so much more maturity and growth and healing. She still hurts about our divorce. She really is over it. But man, the behavioral and emotional growth I've seen because she's had these moments and felt special Mm -hmm. to me, everything. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, you got to identify those, those moments, and. It's great that you were able to see that, you know, in your your own self and in your own children, because that is gold, I think, that you were able to recognize that and see that. Because you're right, we often, you know, go more with the, the outgoing student, the leader student, the one that talks up in class all the time. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was um, teaching, I taught a special ed- education class, and I had a student that was um, indigenous, Dene, and he was pre-primer, so he was below kindergarten, so he didn't know how to read or write. Anyway, I got him, I was going through slides, you know, um, flashcard slides, and, and I was using a monitor and, and clicking, and then he goes, stop, stop. I said, why? He goes... He says, how did you do that? And I showed him the clicker, you know, the remote. I said, this is what I'm doing to change the slides. He goes, no, how did you know my language? Oh, <laughs> and I said, I'm Dene, just like you. That's how I know. Because, that, you know, a word would come up and I'd say it in Dene. And then I'd say it in English and we'd go back and forth. And I think he was... Yeah, he was totally surprised. And once I connected with him on that language, on that level, he excelled. He went from from pre-primer all the way to um, he was able to go into a carpentry, I think it was, that he wanted to go into after. So he was able to go into a carpentry program. And I knew that's what he was interested in. And a lot of the work we did, and I used a lot of the trapping, trapping um, themes because I knew as a trapper, he would be good in numbers because you have to identify, you know, how many pelts you have, how much that costs and, you know, and so I, when you use something that that identify, they can identify, then they learn quicker and they're That's more cool. interested, right? So that was, uh, yeah. I,
1: that's a beautiful story to be able to really showcase how um, we need to be very careful, right? We need to be very <laughs> cautious about Western assessments and where mm-hmm. we place children's capacity and ability or resi- resilience level at, yeah. Yeah. because really, um they're not all culturally safe mm-hmm. and, and look at the potential yeah. and what this this young man overcame as a result of yeah. feeling connected and supported and smart enough and, you know. Mm. right from your experience with him we need to be very very careful about that when we're looking at resilience building in our young people and assessing where Mm. they're at those negative messages sometimes they absolutely can crush a young person's spirit
0: yeah in terms of
1: being told where your potential might lie we need to really build hope in Mm. our young and they need to know that there's somebody in their corner who believes in them and believes that they can do better. Right. That is such an important part of, of resilience, I think, um, and neurodevelopment, right. When you have somebody who is in your corner, who is like, I know you can do this. I Mm -hmm. believe in you. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's to connect. So we have like almost 10 minutes left. Um, So just to wrap up, um, can we, end on a positive note, like what, you know, like there might be some people listening to this that might want to be look at their own trauma. Does it have to be do they need to get a counselor or a psychologist to help work through trauma? Is there some other way that they can? What can what advice can you give somebody that wants to look at their trauma and go through the process to the other side? Well, I think it's, it's a big question
1: because we all have different thresholds for pain, right? And we're Mm -hmm. all at different places in terms of looking at our trauma and what we're ready to deal with that. Wow. I think if, if people are listening today and feel like they really want to do something to address it, uh, to me, that is such a beautiful opportunity to be able to seize. I, I really am such a proponent in across all of our different sectors whether it is teachers and educators like you and i were just speaking about whether it's our policing right whether mm-hmm. it is our physicians and our medical community and doctors yeah. if we can each look at how we've been impacted by trauma in our life
0: mm-hmm. and do
1: our healing work around that yeah. and be compassionate and loving of ourselves mm-hmm. then wow we really have the potential to make a huge impact on society in terms of being more compassionate and understanding with Mm. others. Yes whether it's passing someone on the street who it might be homeless or suffering with mental health issues or in addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. those in my own family, right? Those are my, you might be passing somebody in my family on the street mm-hmm. as you go by today. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that, you know what, it it's not going to be the judgment and condemnation and put downs, that enables that person to stand up and walk towards healing, right? It is going to be the compassion and kindness of a stranger today that might put some hope in their hearts that maybe something different can be possible for their life. And so I really, truly encourage everybody um, to be looking at what we can do to help heal ourselves so that we can truly build healthier, better, more resilient communities. We have the capacity to do that if we do our own healing work.
0: Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. Yeah, that is really great. I know, you know, one of the things that's been our practice in our family because my brother was um, homeless and um, often would beg and for spare change. What we do in our family is when we see somebody that's asking for spare change, I usually would say, what is your name?
1: Mm-hmm. And they would
0: say, Peter, Pat, whatever. And then I would say, here, this is for you. Have yourself a beautiful day and whatever his name is, so I'd say his name, because often the homeless people don't hear their name and they feel invisible. So this is a way to say I see you, yes. and I recognize you as a human being, right? And and hopefully, and they all—they're always really—I haven't had any homeless persons not tell me their name, right? You know, and I and I thought about that, and I thought you know, cause sometimes people think they're paranoid or this, that, you know, and they're not gonna say their name, but they've always said their name and we've always got a connection because I wasn't not seeing them. And I think they recognize that. And I, and I, and I think for youth, indigenous youth, I think to always recognize and let them know you recognize them, you see them, right? I think that more than anything, helps them move, move, move on and, um, uh, become stronger, become resilient because they're recognized they're human. Right. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I think one of the things I would love to end on is that, um, you know, I, I think it's simple, but I think it is incredibly powerful and that is the power of kindness. Right, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really believe that kindness can change our world. I really believe that being the way we treat one another, especially when we look at our communities, I think colonization and intergenerational trauma has really um, impacted lateral violence and how we treat one another. Mm. And if we can start moving in the direction of self compassion, compassion for others, and just treating each other with kindness and respect. Validating mm-hmm. our own trauma and validating the trauma of those around us. Yeah. And man, there is real potential for us to see huge shifts here and mm-hmm. to bounce back after a global pandemic. If that can be our focus, mm-hmm. that can be our heart mm-hmm. is right? if we're really thinking about this from the lens of like, how can we love one another better? How can we treat ourselves with more compassion and kindness? Mm-hmm. How can we deliver kind messages in our own thinking. Right above ourselves, yeah, and how that translate out? How will that emanate out to mm-hmm. others? Yeah, I, yeah. I give. A, I'll, I'll end us with one example that I I love to to give because before the pandemic. I would travel all around to do these speaking engagements. I'd fly up to um, you know, our Northern communities and I, I would give a talk and I'd be kind of going here and there. Well, unfortunately before then, my husband was never the shopper in our family. And when I came home after being away for three or four days, there would be no milk, no bread, no eggs, nothing left, nothing left to feed the family. Yeah. And so if someone came and knocked on my door at, mm-hmm. you know, five o'clock on a day that I'd just gotten home from one of my trips, yeah. I'd be so nervous. Be, don't answer the door. Don't answer the door. <laughs> we have no food. Don't. I have nothing to even give them with their tea. Yeah. So. But if if I came home and I'd gone to Costco, let me tell you, I'm the worst at Costco. <laughs> I, I buy so much, I can't even close my fruit and vegetable drawers. Like when I buy a Costco and someone knocks on my door at five o'clock, <laughs> wow, I'm like, can you invite them in? Do they have a friend who wants to eat? Because I can't even close my cupboards right now. Please come in and share and eat with us tonight. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's such a beautiful metaphor for compassion because yeah. Man, when we don't have compassion for ourselves, when our cupboards are bare and we have nothing for Mm -hmm. us and we're being hard on ourselves, we're being critical, we're being judgmental in our own thinking about what we're not doing right or what we're not doing good enough, right? In the face of all this stress right now, Mm -hmm. we have nothing to give away to others. We don't have enough for our children. We don't have enough for our partners. We don't Mm -hmm. have enough for our friends and our family to give away. Yeah. But if we keep our own homes, our own hearts stocked with self-compassion and those cupboards and those drawers full of love for ourselves mm. and we're with our own care,
0: mm-hmm. we
1: will have enough to have everybody yeah. right over yeah. for dinner. We have enough for compassion for everybody to be kind and yeah. see other people through their, that lens of kindness and not be so quick to judge others. And that's yeah. really my hope. That's my hope in all this work is that we promote compassion and kindness Mm -hmm. so that hopefully we will be having healthier individuals,
0: families, and communities. Mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's really, really wonderful. Yeah. I think, you know, compassion and love that you have for yourself is limitless. And that's why you've got so much to give. And we know that by the love we have for our children. You know, mm-hmm. some people think, oh, well, you know, if they only have one child, how could I love another child, you know, then they have the other one, and their love is still there, like, it's bottomless, like you can have as much compassion and love as you cultivate within yourself. And, and that's the one thing that I really enjoy about my meditation, you know, the, uh, um, the meditation builds compassion, builds love for yourself. And, and then you're able to give that to others. It's like with anything else, like you say, you know, you got to start with yourself, build that up, and then you can give to others. Once you've given it to yourself, it's easy to give away and it should be given away freely, you know, just pass it on. So, yeah, so we're just at the end and I really appreciate you agreeing to come on to my podcast today. I knew we were going to have a an interesting conversation and we have, and I'm really, really touched by, you know, a lot of what you said and truly the love and compassion that you have does come through. It does resonate um, and it does come through. And thank you so much for the work that you do with indigenous youth in mental health. And um, I really want to wish you well as you go forward into your day and uh yeah just keep doing what you're doing you've got a bright shining light in you just share it with everybody thank you so much jennifer it's been really a delight talking to you you as well thank you so very much